You're listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. For more information, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk. Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to live their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Amen. Well, good morning again. And uh, as I said earlier, it's great to be with you this morning. I'm sorry I'm not Chris. Uh, He rang in uh, this morning to say that uh, he's... uh, He's uh, not well, he's tested positive, and so he's not able to uh, be with us today, which is a shame because I know he's been preparing really hard uh, for this sermon, unlike myself, but I have a good excuse, and I can say that this morning. So, so um, nonetheless, um, after considering a few options, we thought, oh, maybe we'll stream Chris, but then you don't want to see him looking all rough or whatever at home, so we thought, oh, I'll just do it. And, and, um, and this is one of those sort of critical passages in the scripture that I just love coming back to again and again. Uh, This has been so formative to me over over the years, this great confession, as it's called, uh, that uh, that I just love love talking about it because it has always been a part of my my testimony, this great confession. And it seems to fit in really well, doesn't it, that this is the part where we're in, in the uh, series, Who Do People Say I Am, Jesus? We've just had a a week, a fantastic week, uh, last week, looking at different testimonies of how people came to faith and how uh, Christ has been a rock for, for them uh, throughout their lives, and it just seems to have, um, have really tied in well. And the fact that it's Mother's Day, if you allow me to tie those two things up together, uh, testimony uh, and mothers, it reminds me much of, uh, of my own journey and how, how formative my own mum was uh, in, in me uh, believing in the Lord. We know it's all on the Lord, but people play a part in that journey, and they're God, God-ordained vessels, and my mum was certainly, certainly one of them. Uh, my mum had me when she was just 18 years old, uh, young mum, uh, all the way over from, from Singapore, Malaysia, uh, met my dad when she was 17, a soldier had me when she was 18, they broke up three years later, 
Uh, and then she went to go live, as I guess, as a single mum with me, my brother, my brother and I. And she was pregnant at the time. And so we couldn't uh, look after or she couldn't look after the, the child. Uh, so that child was adopted out, uh, who I was later to meet when I was 23 before I went to Iraq in God's providence. So, so this was our family. My mum uh, later remarried my dad, my stepdad. Uh, and it was pretty messy growing up. There are a lot of, there are a lot of things to, uh, to, to get in the way and make it hard for my mum raising us. And my, my stepdad himself, he came from a shady background. He was uh, an ex-criminal, went to prison, uh, the one in, in London, Wormwood Scrubs, uh, for all sorts of things. So here we were, this sort of young family, sort of no job to job, growing up in a council estate in Upfield, East Sussex. And there are lots of different factors, I guess, that could have uh, prevented uh, my mum from doing a good job, but she, she did a wonderful job as a young mum, 18, 19, 20, 21, uh, raising me. Uh, I wasn't easy. Uh, at school, I was a tearaway. Many, some of you here know my story. I was, I was the idiot at school, okay? praying that none of my children would be idiots like I was at school. Uh, I was the one that was always in mi up to mischief, the one who was always in trouble. Uh, I left school with no qualifications at all because I didn't take any of them seriously. I went to live with my natural father, my bio dad in America. That didn't work out, so I ran away. I came back home. I was homeless for a little while. Uh, and yet throughout all of these sort of turbulent times, uh, my parents were living... Uh, my parents continued to love me. My mum continued to be uh, a great mum. She, she, she raised me in the way of the Lord. And so this was one of the overarching uh, things that I remembered about my mother and indeed my stepdad was even though throughout these turbulent times, my mum was always a prayerful woman. My mum was always a woman that read the Bible with us uh, literally every morning. I don't think I can think of a time when she didn't. I've still got that Bible today. I remember it very, very fondly, the stories that she read with me. Uh, whenever I used to come down in the mornings very early and kids get up early, I would always see my mum before me on her knees praying to the Lord. So that was my sort of example uh, of a mother growing up. And, and as I said, teaching me in the ways of the Lord, teaching me to church at times, dragging me to church. And I rebelled against the church. And this sort of childlike faith, this confession that I had, if you like, uh, met its match in the world. Uh, I didn't listen to the advice and the counsel of my parents growing up. The Bible says to young children, to young people, to listen to your parents. Uh, be obedient to your parents. I wasn't. Got me in all sorts of trouble, brushes with the law. And, it, you know, it was just a really turbulent time of turning to drink and drugs and all sorts of other things. And, and, and this faith that I once confessed as a young child, and I did like going to church... <laughs> And I did like going away on the Christian camps. It wasn't just because of the girls. There was some sort of a connection there with the Lord. Uh, even though this confession that I had in the Lord, it, it, it did, if you like, sort of just get shelved and put on the back burner as I pursued the way of the world. And with my job and traveling around and doing all sorts, uh, the voice or my confession that Jesus is my king uh, soon sort of faded out into the background, right? And then it took a few sort of uh, examples. I was married at this point, a few sort of, if you like, brushes with, uh, with, with death and some dangerous situations that made me really examine my life. And it made me think, Jamie, you've been carrying on in your life like you're going to live till you're 100 and you'll just get right with God on your deathbed some point. You'll just say, sorry, Lord, please grant me access into heaven. I love you, really. Please will you accept me? That's how I lived my life, okay? I never realized that... Uh, that my life could be demanded of me. 
And if you could look back over the last two years, I think that has really been a bit of a slap in the face for a lot of us, hasn't it? And looking at the situation with what's going on in the Ukraine or perhaps in Burma or other parts of the world, and it seems to be more and more, I don't know if this is just something that you become more acutely aware of as you age, but you, you just become more aware of people dying of, of diseases and sickness. Is it just me? It feels like more people are, are, for example, getting cancer or getting ill, and it just seems so much sometimes. And I always live my life like none of these things were ever going to happen with me, to, to me. I just always thought I was invincible. And then these, a series of events, a catalogues of disaster, made me realise, actually, Jamie, you can't live like you're invincible. You, you have to get right with God. And actually, if what my mum was saying, that there really is a heaven and there really is a hell, and hell really is this place of, of torment and, and flames and, that, and uh, a place where God's uh, anger is poured out, hell is not a place where God is not. Okay, God, uh, this is a place that God has made and God's fury uh, is poured out and his judgment is poured out upon people, okay. So when I realised that this was where I was heading because of the fruits of my life and because I hadn't actually really got right with God, I realised I needed to make that decision for myself because, listen, this was my life, okay, growing up, going to church or going along. So I started going again once I met Amy, my soon-to-be wife, in my early 20s. But this was my problem. I went along to church, I sang the songs, I went to the camps, you know, I had the dodgy Graham Kendrick CDs and all the rest of it, but my life was reflected in what the Bible says, sorry for the Kendrick fans here, okay, my life was the one that Isaiah spoke of in the Bible, where Isaiah said, my, my people, they honour me with their lips, they go through the routine, they give their sacrifice, they go through the motions... But actually, their hearts are far from me. And that was my life. I was religious. I was playing the part. I, I would always say to my family, my mum, yeah, church is going really well, bloody blah, bloody blah. And then the other six days of the week, I was living a reprobate life. Yeah? That was me, full of anger, trapped in a prison, trapped with drinking, uh, promiscuous, and all, all of those other things, addicted to other horrible, shameful things. That was my life. Even though I was presenting this Christian folk over here, and I realised, actually, that being a Christian is not just about being religious, going through the motions, but having this real uh, relationship with Christ by faith, lo loving and trusting in him as my Lord and Saviour. I hadn't done that, and I needed to do it. And so uh, I, I can remember that I, I had to do this. I, I confessed to the Lord. Uh, I said to him, Lord, uh, you are my Saviour. I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that upon the cross you took my sin, all of my rotten sin upon, me, upon you and you died in my place that I might go free. And when I thought of the beauty of the gospel, right, you think of the beauty of the gospel that if the Bible says that in, in, our, in our life, so every wrong thing we've done wrong, it's like it's written down in a book, okay? And mine would literally be like that, just full a catalogue of mistakes, of uh, ignorance and uh, and lies and bad decisions and disobedience to my, to my, disobedience to my parents. That would be my life there, like that book. But it's like when we come to Christ and we, um, and He's opened our eyes and by faith we respond to Him and we repent and we believe in Him, it's like He takes all of those sins, every single one, doesn't matter how bad, how rotten, how dirty you think it is, and He tears it out. Yeah? And He throws it away into the deepest, darkest, the deepest sea as far as the east is from the west. And it's like he puts his new, his new record inside of that book. 
okay, of his righteousness. It's like it's, it's clean pages. There's no wrong in it at all. So that when you stand before him, he looks inside and goes, perfect, because of what Christ has done. And when I thought that Jesus had done that for me, all of my wrongs, my filth, my shame, he took all of that upon him, upon that cross. It made me think, wow, such is the love for Christ. You know that this morning. Such is the, the love of Christ for us, that he would leave heaven, the darling of heaven would leave, come down to earth and do that, the innocent for the guilty, the beautiful for the shame-filled, that Jesus would do that for us. And that's when that became a point in my life where I confessed. I confessed to my wife Amy the stuff that I got up to, the rottenness of my heart. And I called out to the Lord for help. I confessed my sin. And if you like, like Peter, I said, Lord, I'm putting my faith and my trust in you. You are the Christ. You are the Christ of my life and I am trusting in you. And that's when my life sort of changed around. I went from being this... Uh, this, uh, this idiot, okay, to people saying, what's going on here? Is he doing this because of Amy, because he wants to marry her, or what's going on? What's his motivation here? They could not understand. This is how different I was, how this person could change. And he said it was because of Jesus, yeah? Get on your horse, mate. No chance. You're doing that because you want to, if you allow me, and forgive me for being crass, uh, because you want to get in bed with, with Amy or whatever. That's how people thought of my life. They didn't realise that this was... Uh, a real, it was a confession that changed my life. Okay, so here this morning we come to this point in the text where it's considered or it's called the, the Great Confession, where Peter makes this uh, amazing confession that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, but I think it's been put in here as well by Mark for, 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 for another reason. It's not just for non-Christians. It's, it's, it's usually used, okay, at evangelistic events or a Billy Graham crusade or something like that, and rightly so. Because there comes a point in everyone's life when they hear the gospel where they're challenged with Jesus, where they need to make a decision. Who do you say that Jesus is? But actually, it's in here also, I believe, as an, an encouragement to believers. And I'm going to explain why if you look at the context uh, surrounding it. And as has been preached many times here from this lectern, I believe we need to keep coming back to the gospel uh, as Christians because it is a rock. Do you remember that psalm that we read from this morning, that we build our lives on, on, on the rock? Okay? And so here what we have is a, is, is a rock, it's a, it's a rock of truth that we're called to build our lives on. And that's not just for people searching for Christ, that's for people, uh, wherever they're at in their lives, to be reminded of that my life is built upon a rock, it is built upon Christ. He is my, he is my Lord, he is my Messiah, he is the Christ. So we continue this morning with our study of the Gospel according to uh, St. Mark in the 8th chapter. Uh, you've heard it read to you uh, this morning. Uh, it's called the Great Confession. This is taking place in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, the confession is given by Peter. It's interesting how in the Gospel of Mark, this is actually one of the, the, the shorter accounts of this confession uh, compared to Matthew or Luke. So it's in the other ones as well. But it's actually probably being recited by Peter to Mark. So I find it a little bit strange how... In the actual gospel that Peter probably wrote, he's given a very brief account of what's going on. But anyway, we don't have too much time to go into that. So, so this is Peter's confession, written by Mark, but probably narrated by Peter. 
The script picks up verse 27, doesn't it? Follow with me. Verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. What does that mean? And Jesus went on. Uh, You'll remember the last time that we were going through our Mark series, we looked at Jesus feeds the thousand. Do you remember that? A few things have taken place since then. Jesus has rebuked and he has warned of the behaviour of the religious Pharisees. Think back to my testimony. Playing a religious Pharisee, if you like. Jesus is saying, no, that is not what I have called people to. Not to religiosity. Putting forward this appearance and live in another way. Your heart is in the wrong condition. So, so Jesus warning uh, the uh, disciples of the unleavened, if you like, example uh, of the Pharisees. And then what we see after that is we come to this amazing story where Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. I've actually been to this place. It's a very uh, interesting town. Jesus speaks condemnation on this town, but it's a place where a lot of things happen in the New Testament text. Now, what's interesting about this particular uh, miracle is that in the whole uh, of the New Testament, this is the only example where one of the miracles of Jesus doesn't necessarily happen instantaneously. So there's something going on here that Mark wants to see. Now, is it because, uh, so for example, the man requires a second touch. Do you see that in the script? Now, is this because Jesus didn't have the power to heal him instantly? Well, no, of course he didn't. Of of course that's not true. Jesus absolutely did. So this is not due to a lack of power of Jesus. Jesus is the one who said to the dead man, come forth. And he did, as we sung about the songs. Jesus said something, and they did. And it did happen. Jesus is the one who stood on the boat to the waves and to the sea and to the ocean. Peace, be still. And it did. So why then did Jesus not healed this person instantly. I think Mark has put in this in here for a specific reason. It's paralleling something of the journey of faith that we all go through, I expect. So remember, according to John's Gospel, uh, Jesus performed many signs and miracles. And there, were, there wasn't enough time to put them in his, uh, in his account. Do you remember? He said, basically, there's not enough paper or ink to write them all down. There's not enough time. the the, the scriptures would not be able to contain them all. So when you come across miracles that some of the evangelists have recorded and others have not, you need to take note. They're in there for a reason. This is part of Mark's emphasis on the text, as is the case for Mark or Peter here. And this this miracle at Bethsaida, which is unique to his gospel. In fact, the last two miracles that are mentioned in Mark's gospel are unique to Mark. So the first one before this, okay, is Jesus. You see, Jesus helps the deaf person to, to hear. Okay, so that's chapter 7, verse 31. Jesus heals a deaf man. The next miracle unique to Mark's gospel is Jesus heals a blind man. So do you see where I'm going with this? This is leading on to the confession. Jesus unblocks the ears of the deaf. Jesus opened the eyes of the blind. And now what we see here in Mark's thinking, strategically placed with the deaf hearing, the blind seeing, is the confession of Peter. So, what does that all mean? Well, let's turn my sheet and I'll tell you. So the deaf hear and the blind eventually see. So back to the, uh, the actual example. Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. You might want to follow me. Chapter 8, eight verse 22. 
And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spat, spit in his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So that seems to indicate that he wasn't born blind, but he was able to have points of references that he recognised. So it seems to indicate, say scholars, that he probably lost his sight somehow because he's able to recognise things here. So they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His, His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he said to him, sent him home, saying, do not enter the village. So the man looks up. He sees men like trees walking. Uh, this tells us he probably wasn't born blind. Then Jesus asks him, what do you see? The man responds, well, I see something. Uh, it's not uh, completely dark to me. I see like these strange tree things here because his vision was dim. His vision was blurred. And he couldn't make out the difference between people or, or trees. So Jesus lays his hands on him again. And heals him and he's restored and it's this picture of someone that cannot see and and now at last they can see. But it it takes a couple of of times, right, for him to eventually get to be able to to see and have his sight restored. So according to, uh, to a commentator here, he says he sees everyone clearly. The force of that sentence is that Jesus has now reached this man to such a degree that when he looks up, the verb signifies that he can see clearly from a great distance. His vision is now without blur. It's impeccable. His healing is total and complete. So that is what is leading up to this great confession. Now try and picture that, if you like, in, this, in the person who's searching uh, and they're going through that, that period of, of God reaching out to them in, in different ways and a different ways in which that happened. Think of your own testimony, not just mine, of how along the way to coming to faith you see clear examples of God trying to reach out to you, yeah? Where it's a bit blurred, maybe you can see like trees that should be men, you can see something, but it's not quite made sense. You haven't fully had your eyes open to you to be able to, to see, okay? So this is what I think Mark is doing here. The deaf get to hear and the blind people get to see and it gets to that point of confession so it seems to me this is a parallel of the person coming to faith so the disciples uh, report to Jesus uh, so, so, so sorry so this man is able to be healed and now then follow the disciples as they're going along from this amazing miracle they're going up to this place called Caesarea Philippi and again I've had the privilege of, of being there I've only been there once but it's this wonderful place at the foot of Mount Hermon And when you go up there, it's a very interesting, beautiful place. And you can still see, did you know, the the remnants, the archaeological sort of remnants of of its former past. And this used to be a place where there was temples and all sorts of uh, false uh, worship that took place up there, notably to the god Pan, the god of nature, so the pagan god. And it's like Jesus has brought his disciples up to this place, okay, and he's asking them, Uh, And they're surrounded by all of these distractions of the world, everything else that the world is chasing after. In the midst of all of that, he's saying to them, and who do you say that I am? So their response is, well, we've been listening to what some of the crowd are saying. And the word on the ground is that just listening what's going on. 
is that maybe you're John the Baptist. Why John the Baptist? Well, John the Baptist was this fiery sort of zealous person who wasn't afraid to challenge the authorities, was he? He was the one who called out Herod for what he was doing and the way he was cheating on his brother's uh, wife. So John wasn't someone who was afraid to confront the authorities and the religious system of the day. Jesus, likewise, was not afraid to call out the religious hypocrisy of the day. We've seen it all the way throughout Mark. Jesus calling out the behaviour of the Pharisees. They said, though, maybe not just John, we've also heard that uh, some people are saying, you're, you're like uh, Elijah. Maybe you're like Elijah. So why would they think that? Well, at the very end of the Old Testament, in the last book of the prophecy, the book of Malachi, God makes the promise that there is coming a time when, before the, the Lord's day of judgment comes, Elijah is going to come. Before him, before the coming day of the Lord. And before the Messiah comes. So some of the the Jewish people are automatically thinking, well, maybe you are Elijah. Maybe Jesus is Elijah, one of the prophets. And so Jesus responds and says to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say I am? Or as a commentator says here, let's frame it this way, bearing in mind the death here, the blind get to see this process of sight being gradual to eventually seeing who Christ is. Let's rephrase it like this. Do you see yet who I am? Do you see yet who I am? Have you finally perceived my identity? Or am I a, just a dim, blurred walking tree to you? Who do you actually say that I am? And we read that Peter says gloriously that you are the Christ. Now, we've all got to come to that place in our lives when challenged with that question, who do you say that Jesus is? And I hope that all of you sitting here this morning, your response is, I say that you are Jesus, the Christ. I've shared something of my story of getting to that point, although seeing dimly and blurred, that he really is the Son of God. He's the Messiah, and I'm going to put my my faith and my trust and surrender my life to him. And, And that's the question we must all come to. Uh, to, to be asked and answer. Now, if you look at uh, Matthew, which is the fuller version here, Peter responds in his account by saying, which is chapter 16, verse 16 onwards, you are the Christ, Christ, the son of the living God. And, he, and, and Jesus responds by saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Not flesh and blood, but my Father who is in heaven. And of course, that's my, my testimony. That's the testimony of all of you sitting here today. That's the testimony, I think, of Mark and the evangelists in their Gospels. And that's what we need to challenge those who don't believe with. Who do you say that, that, that Jesus is? Trusting that the Holy Spirit is at work in people's lives, that they will come to this place of, of seeing Jesus, not just dimly, not quite making sense, but finally and fully, have, fully having their spiritual sight opens and saying, he is the Christ. Is that not what we want after the, the week we've just had of reaching out uh, to people in our communities and friends and loved ones? Can you think of friends and loved ones today, relatives, colleagues who you've been sharing and you just don't feel like it, it, it's sinking in. They're seeing Christ dimly and we want Christ to unblock their ears and we want Christ to restore their sight and see him for who he is. 
Now, in, in response to that, and just thinking through our evangelistic duty, if you like to go in and tell people, that's what Jesus has told us to do, go and tell people that their sight may be restored, their spiritual sight, that their ears may be unblocked and they may hear and see who I am. In Matthew's account, uh, in his response to uh, Simon Peter, he says, Not only blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but you are Petros, you are Peter, and he gives him a new name. So it goes from being Simon to being the rock, like the original rock, yeah, from WWF, but much better. So he's saying, you are the rock. And Jesus says, and upon this rock, I will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there has been much argument over this phrase throughout the years. So some uh, denominations or other um, I want to say something spicy. Maybe I should or maybe I shouldn't. So maybe some other uh, slightly sort of warped views will go, we'll say that, I'm happy with that. Some other warped views would say that this, this rock is actually Peter, literally. And so the church has built literally upon Peter. Yeah? So if you go to the Vatican, uh, you'll, you'll hear such fa- fables. Okay? But actually what it's talking about is this confession It's the confession that is the rock, and it's the confession, you are the Son of God, the Christ, that we are called to build our lives upon. And it's this confession that is directly correlated to what Jesus is saying here. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now notice when you look at the way in which that sentence is structured. Jesus is not saying that. Hell will not fire its darts at you continually. Nor is Jesus saying that hell will not go out of its way to come out and attack you. We're seeing that. We've seen that over the last uh, two years during this pandemic of people's faith and people's marriages and people's relationships and people's peace being robbed and, 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 and come under fierce attack from hell and all of its minions. So we know it's not saying that. So gates were used, why is Jesus using this word gates? Gates were defensive mechanisms in the ancient world. So he's saying the gates of hell will not prevail. So it's not talking about hell coming towards us, and we know it does, but it's talking about the Christians and our call to go and reach people with the gospel as we go to them. The gates shall not prevail. The defensive mechanisms, and we are called to go with the gospel, and those gates that uh, stand in our way will not prevail as we go uh, forth with the fa- faithfully with the gospel. Do you see where I'm coming at, church? As we go forward with the gospel of truth, those gates will not stand in our, in our way. And we're to, to absolutely believe that because that is what Jesus has said. The gates of hell shall not prevail. The church has an offensive mission to tear down strongholds and to tear down the gates of hell by the power of the gospel. Blind people to see, deaf people to hear, the love of Christ to go forward. So there is that very much that that sense, the evangelistic sense in which this can be applied. But let me, if I may, as I finish, just encourage also believers this morning. Because as I said earlier, this is also for believers. I wonder if there is anyone here who... Wherever you're at, in, in your faith, with the turbulence that we've been through, okay, it's like you're seeing Jesus dimly at the moment. It's not quite making sense 
through the storms and through the weather that you are going through. You can't quite make him out in the midst of it all. And I want to encourage you, press on. Press on. As I come back to, to, to my journey of faith, of coming to that great confession, life to me, I know mean, I'm a pastor standing up here, but life to me didn't suddenly become a bed of roses. I went through similar trials to others. You know, during very early on in our marriage, I was away nine months in a whole year of our marriage. Our marriage was, came under extreme turmoil and strain. You know, thinking through our, our pregnancy, and I know that this is particularly poignant to some people here today, losing uh, or m- miscarrying in, in the womb. And again, my heart goes out to those who are on Mother's Day who have experienced uh, similarly. Okay? So that was our, our journey uh, of faith and, and crying out, Christ Jesus, where, where are you? And seeing it a little bit dimly and going through other uh, examples of just being flat out on my back, uh, just asking, Jesus, where are you? Even sadly at the hands of some, some believers, religiosity. Yeah? So constantly sort of through the, uh, through the many uh, years of, uh, of faith, battles, wars, temptations... Uh, feeling the tumultuous waves just battering against us and just seeing Jesus dimly. These are in here for your encouragement. These are in here for your edification. Mark is showing us. Mark is showing us that that is okay if you're going for it. doesn't make you a bad Christian. doesn't make you a weak Christian. We go through these storms of life and there are times where we see him dimly. And it's uh, our duty to come back to, to the word, to come together with one another, to encourage one another. Don't give up. Press on. Be encouraged. And that's one of the other reasons why I believe it is here, the confession. Because we're all called when we go through these doubts and we go through these waves and we're tossed to and fro to come back to the confession we made in our lives. To come back to this critical point of saying, who do I say Jesus is. Even in the storm, who do we say that Jesus is? He is our Messiah. He is God's Son. He is the one who loved and died for us. He was the one who was forsaken for us so that we never would be forsaken upon the cross. And more than that, He is the one who holds the keys to life. He is the one who reigns supreme and conquers over it all and is coming back one day to right every wrong. He is the one who sees every tear of every believer. He is the one who is the captain of our souls, or as Spurgeon says it, as only uh, Spurgeon can. After taking arms against a sea of troubles, we find ourselves unable to stop the boisterous torrent. I wonder if that's anyone here today, brothers and sisters. You feel like you're just up against a boisterous torrent. You are swept down, downstream. Loss succeeds loss and riches take flight. He says we see nothing but absolute want. It is then that we require abundant grace to sustain our spirits. Abundant grace in the foggy, unclear times. You need these promises, he says. Fear not. Fear not, for I am with you. Fear not, for the Lord is with you. Be not dismayed, brothers and sisters. Be not dismayed, for he is with you. Your maker is your husband. He is the one who loves you. 
like no other. The Lord of hosts is his name. So again, uh, church, that's encouragement to anyone here this morning who may be seeing Christ right now. It's a little bit dim. It's not quite making sense. Be of good courage. Be of good cheer. Come back to your confession of faith. Remember, he is the one who came, left heaven, who died for us, who paid our penalty, took upon him our shame and our judgment because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And he is the one who has given his life, will not let go of you. You are in his hands. Come back to your confession. Come back to who he is. Come back to what he has done. So as I I wrap up, two, two things. Maybe there is someone here today. Maybe there's someone listening online. Maybe there is someone who's going to tap in on YouTube or at Green Lane who has not confessed Christ as Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Don't be an idiot like I was growing up, putting it off, thinking I can get right with him at some other stage. Today is the day. Don't take life for granted. Look at what's happening. Today your life might be demanded of you. I'm not trying to scaremonger anyone. It's the reality of the world we live in. Are you right before God? Do you know you're going to heaven or do you know you're going to hell? With Peter, echo that confession. I say you are the Christ and I bow the knee before you. Or maybe there's a believer here today who is seeing Christ dimly. They're going through the storm and you need to be encouraged from up the front and by your brothers and sisters and by coming to God's word, remembering who he is and what he has done. He is the Christ and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, less than ideal circumstances, but Lord, whenever we open your word, uh, we know it's your word and we trust not in um, human extravagance or delivery or any of these things. Lord, I have nothing to offer ultimately. It's only you, it's only you, Holy Spirit, uh, applying your word. And so, Lord, I pray that you might encourage uh, brothers and sisters here this morning that if anything, they might hear uh, that great confession and it might resound in their own souls that he is my Lord, he is my Christ, he is my Messiah. And that we might echo that again for ourselves here today. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Lord, I pray for anyone who maybe uh, is here this morning or listening, uh, who doesn't yet know you, maybe hasn't made this confession, who sees you dimly, That, Lord, you might, by the power of your Holy Spirit and your word, reveal fully who you are to us. That you might fully restore sight and open ears and show them just how great and awesome and loving and mighty you are. And, Lord, for our believers here uh, that also see you dimly, would you show yourself, would you encourage them? Lord, would you apply it? Uh, your holy uh, balm to their souls and encourage them just to keep on pressing on because you are with them and you have them in their hand. So Lord, encourage us all this morning for we pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.
You have been listening to the podcast from Emmanuel Community Church. To find out more about us, go to emmanuelcc.co.uk.